Welcome to Life on the Illinois Prairie. Your host is Wendy Fleming Dexter, and after 30 years living in small town Illinois, she has stories to tell. Past cornfields and factories, into the heart of Amish country. There's more here than what meets the eye, far beyond what you think you know. So buckle up and stay tuned. This is Life on the Illinois Prairie. Hi, this is Wendy Fleming Dexter, and welcome to Life on the Illinois Prairie. My guest today is a retired physical therapist and massage therapist, and presently is owner of Fair Trade Horsemanship. I'd like to welcome Ricky Cummings. Ricky, thank you for being here. Hey, it's my pleasure. Um, I'm going to correct you on something. Okay. It's Fair Deal Horsemanship, and it actually has a philosophical reason of why I use the term fair deal. Okay. Please explain that. So when I first started with horses, it was an introduction to them by my wife. She, oh, about 25 years ago, decided that um, I should be more involved. She, it was her hobby. So she infected me with equinosis. And that is a chronic condition of loving horses. There is no cure. And, um, and so I jumped in feet first thinking that maybe I could do this with no experience whatsoever. And it took me a long time to develop what was sound and fair for the horse. And I was looking around and educating myself consistently, uh, reading, watching videos, attending clinics, um, trying my hand at horsemanship with the, the few horses she had at the time. And when I found out that I was wrong and I was doing things that was creating horses to be fearful and evasive. Um, it was satisfying what I wanted them to do, but I, I actually saw horses back into their emotions and, and become less cooperative and less collaborative. And when I was brought to the realization that maybe what I was doing was uh, just trying to expedite their behavior and making them obedient without realizing that they are sentient beings, I started looking elsewhere for new ideas and and how to be more fair so that I could communicate with them and they would collaborate. They wouldn't just do it because I was threatening them uh, or I was using punishment. Uh, they would actually see that I was trying to communicate. And so I was trying to be more fair. And I started thinking about what would I name my business. And about 12 years ago, I came up with Fair Deal Horsemanship. And it has two prongs to it, though. Mm. I also see that in the population of horse enthusiasts, we have a lot of clinicians. Uh, they charge a lot of money to attend their uh, clinics and seminars. And it's something that when we look at the enthusiast population, um, the majority of them are interested in having good horses, but don't have the resources. Hmm. And so I thought, well, how, how do we make it so that they can attend these flashy, expensive programs? So I've started trying to put together ideas of, well, I don't need a mansion on the hill. I don't, I don't need to have um, several ranches all over the country. Uh, I, I need just to have people understand how to better be with their horses. So if I make a living and there's enough left over when I pass away from my funeral, I did good. <laughs> and uh, because I can reach more people by not having them dive deep into their resources, um, which many of them don't have. So there's people with resources that can afford horsemanship classes, riding, training, uh, the top breed. They can, they can afford these ready-made horses that they may not even know how to ride, but they, they go ahead and, and shell out the money and, and call themselves successful. Hmm. Um, I, don't, I don't see it as uh, a success unless you really know how to develop a relationship and know how to train, uh, know how to communicate. 
I, I did. I've seen your. I've seen the name Fair Deal Horsemanship. I know I misspoke and said Fair Trade. I must have been thinking of some global <laughs> entity there somehow. Then where I confused that. But um. well, that's a, that's okay. Uh, I I I try to. I try to be fair when I trade my ideas, so it was close. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. So you, how you, you, you were able to take your extensive background in physical therapy and massage therapy with humans and apply those techniques, many of them, to horses. That has been very successful for you with the horses you've worked with, hasn't it? Yeah, um, I was actually privileged to have. Uh, a physical therapy education because it helped me move into a step that I really wasn't planning on. And um, I had ulterior motives to attend the postgraduate certification process out of the University of Tennessee. And that particular certification is for rehabbing horses. And so it fit really well. And I was immersed into a large group of vets and a couple of us physical therapists. And it was rather intensive because um, we learned uh, everything about all the different modalities. And we also did dissections, um, had to do a lot of uh, sitting through lectures. And it, it opened my eyes. But my motivation, as I, as I explained to uh, one of the top spine researchers that was one of our mentors uh, in the classes down there. His, he's from Colorado State. Um, Dr. Hausler pulled me aside and said, why are you really here? Hmm. And, and I said, well, it's not so much for the rehab aspect. I want to know what injures horses. And he, hmm. it just kind of surprised him. He said, well, we need more people like you. Hmm. And I said, well, I, I, want, I want to take what you're teaching me here, and I want to go to the preventative side hmm. so that I'm going to train horses to reduce the potentials of the common injuries that you're describing me. Hmm. And it, it's not that I want to diagnose, because that's the vet's job. And, and it's not that I want to uh, purchase all these modalities, because that's the, that's the top end rehab. I want to be at the level where I know horses' anatomy, physiology, and their potentials for being harmed by competition too soon, poor training techniques. And that's where I kind of uh, put a feather in my cap by going through that program. Now, physical therapy and, and doing body work as a massage therapist, I combine those into my own clinic. So people could come to me without a physician's prescription, and I could do body work on them. Well, physical therapists know how to do joint mobilizations, soft tissue releases, postural assessment, um, assign therapeutic exercises. Um, as a body worker, I could work on people and help augment their body through manual techniques and then take them out into a gym. I have a, a very professional gym set up. I still have it. Um, I brought it home when I closed my facility um, and teach them, here's what you need to do if you want to be a better functioning individual. So with horses, I can take a horse and I can examine them posturally, whether it's dynamic, they're in movement or static, and then I can see how they're using their individual joints. And then I can formulate some sort of new movement um, patterns to try to use with that horse. And then that way, we can get the horse to, to satisfy some of my precepts and principles that I've learned studying horsemanship. Oh, that's that's been occurring for 2,400 years, if you go all the way back, um, and how these different phases and techniques and methods evolved uh, to what we have now. And there's a rich and very well-supported set of gymnastic exercises that come out 
of centuries old manuals that are being proven today that you can make a horse or help a horse develop to move in better balance. Uh, and we are back. We lost signal for just a little bit, but we're back on another platform and we're going to pick up where we left off. I believe you're talking about a manual, Ricky, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I was talking about how we were, uh, I'm, I'm using my skill sets mixed with education and coming to um, the ability to gymnasticize or exercise horses so that I can analyze their positions during standstill or dynamically while they're moving so I can help correct their postures and make them a healthier animal, a more functioning animal, just like with humans. You know, your form dictates your function uh, in horses. If I can examine their form, I can help them improve their function. So it, it really ties in well together to have manual skills because if I see that they're really tight somewhere or if they have some locked up bony areas, joints, um, I can release those. And uh, um, I was trained uh, by Dr. Hausler uh, how to do all of the spinal release. And I find that the, the spine really dictates movement um, and then everything follows. So it's been, uh, it's been a wonderful melding of the human profession with the horse profession with studying uh, classical training methods that have forever been creating optimal horses. Hmm. So a lot of the conventional training methods have really are things that, you, that you're tr you're trying to go in and correct or change some of these methods that have been in place that have caused some, the improper training that have caused issues in horses. Yeah, it's, there's there's um understanding the anatomy and physiology. We see that horses are started uh, too young mm -hmm. in in a lot of the. Uh, competitive requirements for today's um, different different breed organizations, different uh, competitive organizations. Uh, they they don't limit when you start a horse, and unfortunately, um, starting them too early leads to injuries, predictable injuries. Uh, the surgeon that was our lecturer, uh, also from Colorado State. Uh, his name is Dr. Kowchak, and he, in his lecture, he said that in his surgery, he sees that the youngest uh, starters, uh, the horses that are started at two and three years old because there's competitions for them, he says 60 to 80% of them by six years old um, have a permanent distortion or lameness that is going to follow them for the rest of their life. And I find that to be true. It's subtle. Uh, when you see some of it, but it's going to limit that horse later in life to have mm -hmm. a good service life. So if we contrast this to waiting until uh, the horse is three and a half to uh, be on their back, but in, 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 and only for a limited amount of time, um, because you do all the groundwork and you use uh, the gymnastic work in order to prepare them to carry a load. And there's not a horse that's been born yet that can carry loads on their back properly. Um, with all the breeding and with all the perfection of uh, trying to optimize a horse for its intended use through breeding, you still need to get that horse to function to carry a load. And when I when I see these horses that are started really young and being being ridden as two year olds. Um, it just breaks my heart because I know that, uh, that that's not a good way to approach the animal. And the animal has no choice. If you're really going to work with a horse, you, the first thing you got to do is you got to love the horse. And then you want to do everything you can to make them function so that your investment in them early pays off in the long run. Hmm. I have um, uh, uh, horses that I have started and they do much better at 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, uh, where I see a lot of people that their horses weren't started really well or they're started too early and they're not started with preparing them to carry a load. They were just started by, let's get a saddle on that horse. And that's their first 
impression of the human is, well, they put this animal hide on my back. And Mm -hmm. then they go into a fear response. And that fear response uh, due to this... uh, this new item on their back hollows their back and then they want to get on them and ride them until they give up. So they, then they bronk out underneath them. Um, and by then the horse has, uh, has, has learned that, um, their postures are going to be a little more hollow. They're going to not truly be able to work underneath themselves with the hind legs. They're not going to be able to round their back. They're not going to be able to hold the load properly. So they're going to be less maneuverable and they're going to be potentially um, shorter service life. So, um, and I want to tie that into, um, when we have the opportunity to improve, uh, a horse, we have to look at the horse as a sentient being. It has a language. It has an innate language. Um, Sue Dyson is a veterinarian. She lives in Britain and she's done two very solid researches on, um, expression. One is reading a horse's expression. Uh, The other one is the horse reading a human expression. And she has determined or she has discovered that the sensitivity of horses to a human emotional uh, exposure uh, through facial uh, or body postures, the horse can read that human better than the human reads the horse. So. When you have a horse that you pay no attention to their facial um, expressions or their body expressions and you approach them because you have something in your mind you're going to have that horse do and you're not approaching them looking for them being receptive, but you're just going to blow right through it, you don't get a really good response from the horse because you weren't reading the horse. Horses have this intense sensitivity through every one of their sensory systems that is just blows the doors off a human's ability for sensory and interpretation. And there's a book out there. Now, all your listeners should write this down. Grab a pen, paper, and write down Dr. Janet Jones. Again, Dr. Janet Jones. She has put out a book called Horse Brain, Human Brain. That book, Horse Brain, Human Brain, that book explains all of the sensory interpretations for a horse and what their brain is like and how they process information. And not to my surprise whatsoever is explaining what I just described about a horse um, reading you so well. And it affects their posture, it affects their gut, it affects their emotion. Uh, And if you can read it properly, you don't want them to get into that fight or flight or that fear. They may not run from you, but they are a lit firecracker. And that is no time to try to teach a horse anything if the horse is not receptive. So getting back to horse brain, human brain, she explains it very well based on the science and the research. Horses are wired to go from sensory to motor nervous system, meaning they detect something. And the first thing that fires is locomotion. They go into a, we got to get out of here, muscular skeletal prep position. And that position is deleterious. It's harmful to the horse if they move habitually in that position because nothing's in neutral, nothing's aligned properly. The horse is just putting all its energy into freaking out. And that's the human. When we have something enters our sensory, we don't go right to motor. We go to a different section of our brain and go, am I in danger? first. The horse is past that. They're a mile down the road before they look back and go, okay, what was it? And I'm worried about it. Um, so if, if you don't tune into that, if you don't understand that the horse has a level of fear that takes them beyond learning, 
So now they're just responding because they're scared. So they're going to try and solve what scares them in order to get whatever is scaring them to quit. And that's what a lot of trainers do is they approach the horse with a tool. could be a whip. Uh, it could be a rope. And if they don't get what they want, then they blame the horse. And mm -hmm. that's where I want to change people's minds. Read the horse. Understand they're a sentient being. They have a intense sensitivity to their environment. I call it the molecule rule. Now, this is my little thing because I've had horses that don't do well in new environments because the new environment has potentials to possibly hide uh, something that is going to attack them. And, and, and there's not. It could be a squeaky fan in the Coliseum at the State Fair. They're not used to hearing that. It could be the kid in the front row holding his, um, holding his brand new inflatable doll that he won. And he's at a horse contest and your horse goes by it. And that kid's waving this doll up in the air. And mm -hmm. you have to be prepared that that horse is going to say, that's abnormal. And that scares me. So I'll see someone that comes across a new situation sitting on their horse. Their horse jumps sideways and they punish the horse. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, the human. Now, here's. Here's where, let's flip this on the other side of the relationship. Once a human is as in touch with the whole environment, every molecule in it, then they would know why their horse jumps sideways. They would know that their horse is nervous about something, and they would take note of every time I pass that window, my horse gets jiggy. Instead of blaming the horse, let's see what we can do about that window and the horse's response to it. So that's another, if I could get people to realize, read your horse, understand your horse, understand that they are absolutely a firecracker under you. So you need to be as tuned into them, their environment as they see it so that you can respond without blaming them. It changes the horse's world when they realize that that person that's working with them is going to help instead of, well, if I get scared, if I'm the horse and I get scared, I'm going to get punished. There's, there's no reason to live like that. Mm -hmm. What percentage of trainers would you say are coming around to this, to this, to your way of thinking? Do you think this is something that is going to gain gain some traction so that people can I know it's just to create a whole paradigm shift is in especially in a, a industry like a horses that um, there are probably some deeply entrenched um, feelings and beliefs so you are you kind of up against a major machine there trying to um, or, or are you rise these ideas coming into more favor the, there's a there's a there, there are some very thoughtful individuals out there that are reading the same things I'm reading, that are practicing the art of uh, communicating better with their horses uh, while training. And um, they're a, a, a very, very small minority. Uh, if we look at what has to happen in order for someone to be competitive with their horse, and I'd say uh, just a wild guesstimation, educated guest, 80% of the people of the horses are, they're, they're pleasure horses. Mm -hmm. um, so anywhere from 12 to 20% are competitive. And so the horses in the competitive world are at the mercy of the, and I, I don't want to insult everybody because there's some really good competitors out there, but I'm talking about the ones that are glory seekers. Uh, they'll do anything to win. So they'll use contraptions on the horse uh, in order to leverage it. I mean, serious uh, tie downs uh, mm -hmm. so that they won't pop their head up or they'll use a, a bit that's got a long shank on it and with a mouthpiece that is painful. Um, none of these things are required uh, 
in most of the, the competition training. Uh, and then you see all that stuff disappear when the horse comes into competition because some of those things are illegal in competition. So they'll do whatever they can behind the barn in order to succeed. And that's, like you said, the great machine out there. Um, that's something that just isn't going to change. Once in a while, we see uh, an individual that is immersed in that and they come out of it. And they go, holy moly, what have I been doing to my horse? And they, they finally kind of rat out all their buddies and say, I'm not doing this anymore. Without naming names, they just say, I've, I've made millions of dollars, and I'm telling you, the industry stinks. Um, and those are rare that come out. Uh, I find if I, if I was able to change uh, the mindset of the humans, the horses wouldn't suffer as much. We, we don't see a lot of reigning horses that are still uh, happy and going at 21 and 22 years old. Um, we see a lot of the art, artist, artistry of classical training, like French classical, some of the German methods that, uh, that um, are really based on the same foundations as, as the French. We see some of those horses still rideable and happy and they're 25 years old and they're not retired and, and uh, uh, they're living a great life. Um, and in, in those lives, you know, they've had their, they've had everything um, that they've needed. They've had a, a, a horse society that they belong to. So they have the social connection. Uh, they, they have turnout and pasture. They have good hoof care. Uh, they get regular training intervals. Uh, done from the ground, not being ridden, and then also being ridden, uh, so they're they're kept athletic. Um, but the side of the people that are using horses to to make money and to glorify themselves at any costs to the horse, it's just victimizing the horse for their for their ego. Um, and I I was uh, a competitor on gated horses. And, uh, and I would see it and it, it made me sick what they would do to get them. And I, I would bring a horse in that's trained, uh, according to how horses are built and how they communicate and do very well against them. And they did not like me because I voiced my opinion, uh, for the breed and the breed organization that, um, you know, you indoctrinate people to do this. You're 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 telling them that they have to have this equipment in order to achieve that status, and uh, it it's just a nasty cycle. Because when you have that machine, um, and people are rising to uh, toward the top because they want to be like somebody that they've been emulating, uh, then there's really not a lot I can do when that mindset has already been formed and indoctrinated. Someone has to have a true, um, almost a, uh, 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 a self-awareness that what they're doing isn't fair. And there's the fair deal horsemanship. It isn't fair to the horse. And then they realize I could have a much better horse if I was to just calm myself down. The same thing. So, um, this, this, this brings in a different, uh, line of thought that I went uh, and started educating myself that ties into, we have um, a, 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 a deep natural ability to uh, have an alarm system go off in our body uh, and, and uh, the autonomic system. And they used to have it divided into, okay, you're either in a fight or flight or rest and digest. And it's not that simple. Um, horses have uh, a very similar autonomic system other than as mentioned before um, they are very motor connected to their sensory inputs so they're going to move out um, if we're stuck in a chair and we're on a deadline and we know that we're behind and we have the same exact neurochemical musculoskeletal response as if we know a lion is chasing us we hmm. chemically, neurochemically, we go into um, a very prepared to uh, flee or fight. Uh, some people go into uh, almost freeze, so you get your cognitive fog. Uh, you go into using your most primitive brain uh, instead of using your executive function, our, our, our latest evolution of the brain, which is 
the frontal lobe and the prefrontal cortex, which is where we do a lot of our problem solving and our planning and our abstract thought. Um, and the horses don't have that. They are just automatic. But the human, they will sustain it. And it makes them very unhealthy. The horse, once they get into an environment that they don't have the pressure on them, they will reverse it. And the human, they will use that executive function to keep feeding it back into their primal system. And they will stay in a alert and warning neurochemical musculoskeletal we got the tight shoulders I, my shoulders are in my ears and the reason the reason i started studying that is because humans were coming to me with very predictable musculoskeletal problems and i would start to discuss with them what is going right and what is going wrong in your life because i needed them to realize do you know that you're holding tension in this part of your body nonstop because I can feel it while I'm working with them. Hmm. You know that you have created a less functional and a very impaired movement pattern because of your static postures. So take that to the horse. The horse actually satisfies their fight or flight and brings it back to rest and digest the second they get out in the pasture. They don't have the executive function because they don't have this frontal lobe developer or the evolution of to think about it. They aren't worried about um, Tony the tiger jumping out at them when they're on pasture at home all safe. They wait and save that until they're in a new environment. And they're like, I've got to do the molecule rule. And I'm going to inventory every molecule. And once I've decided that there's not a molecule in here that's going to bother me, then I'm going to relax and I will be your whatever for the competition, for the trail ride, um, just for the pleasure. Uh, and that's where I want to work with the horse. But if I don't work with the human to be self-aware and correct themselves, and they walk into a barn and they're tense, every horse in that barn knows it. And mm. they will look at that human and they will all get a little restless. And most people don't see it. They don't see that that human just set off a bunch of horses. So I try to walk into the barn the exact same. Here I am. What do we want to do? I get a horse out into the arena. They don't come out by being stuck in a halter. I open a stall door. My IOA goes right to the arena. I just step back. Do you want to go out there? Grab a bite to eat on your way, would you? And there's free choice hay sitting there, their favorite. And they'll munch on it, and that buffers their stomach. So if they do get a little nervous, I'm not going to create too much acid on them. And then I just come up behind them and say, let's go out. And I tap them uh, either right at the tail dock, which is just above the tail, on their rump, which means we're moving forward, or where my leg would say, let's, let's move. And I just touch them, come on, let's go out. And they snatch a couple bites, and we go out. And so they're not excited. They don't have something binding them. And then I walk them around the perimeter they get used to just walking with me nothing's on them yet i just walk them around and say come with me will you come with me let's go for a walk and they all know that's the routine now originally they won't do that initially they won't do that i have to prompt them a little bit get off that food we're going to the arena and then i'll go sit if it's an excitable horse and i'm new with i go sit down right on a a therapy ball or a step mount for a horse. I sit there and I let them get their yayas out. They go kick around and run around and everything. Eventually, as they see me there, I'm not asking anything. I'm not demanding anything. I'm calm. I'm actually going through my body and trying to find my tense spots and tell them myself, okay, you know, it's time to be calm. And that's not sedate. It's calm. It's aware. It's in the, in the moment. Those horses eventually come up right to me and just go, okay, what do you got for me? Let's do something. And it is one of the best feelings in the world. And if I could get people to realize, don't go out there and just start working the horse and stick them on a lunge line and gallop them out till they're tired. Because what you get is you get a very strong, healthy horse that takes, at first, five minutes to get them tired. And then they get better. And it takes 10 minutes to get them tired. 
And then they get better than that. And eight weeks later, you got this horse that can gallop on a lunge line for 45 minutes before they get tired and you haven't trained them except that they go out there and get overly excited. They're not receptive. They're running around a circle. And when they're tired, then you start asking them to do things. You just wore them out. Mm. I want them to start all rested. Let's get them out. Let's work with you. And we start in what I call our nice working or uh, actually a slower walk. And I start looking at how they're moving. I put them through corners and I go, hey, here's what I see what you're doing today. I would like you to try this. And then I get out my touch cues. And it's, it's with a whip, which unfortunately it's called a whip or uh, it's not used as one, or I use a bamboo, um, a very long tomato steak, and I can touch them. I can reach out and say, can, can you alter what you're doing with this muscle right here? And if I see something that, you know what, you're not moving right, then I go through their spine, I manually reset them, I find the tight muscles, then they go, this guy cares. And I like what, he, I like what you're doing. You should see him. I like what you're doing. That's the kind of approach that should start every session. Now, let's go out here. Let's work. You're going to just follow every command I give you. I'd give the horse a little bit of input. And then they go, hey, we're starting to collaborate. And then it starts to snowball. They're like, well, I can do that. Well, can you do this? Can, can I add this to it? And it's very in- incremental. It's almost watching paint dry when we first start. And then later on, they come out, and I don't have to use any tools. I just have to set up in a posture that looks like I have the tool. And they go, oh, I know what that posture means. I'm going to give you a shoulder in. Oh, I know what that posture means. I'm going to turn the opposite direction so that I can move my shoulders for you. Oh, I know what that means. That means we're going to slow down. I know. Oh, I know what that means. You want me to go over that jump? And that you know takes a year, two years. Getting there, I have arranged this horse's mind to understand I'm not forcing you to do anything, but I'm asking you, and can we do it in a receptive, collaborative build and slowly get you up to all these exercises that you're, unbeknownst to you, are making you able to carry a load, work under yourself, stay calm going forward, stay with me when I ask you to change into a new gait pattern. And that pattern means you moved into it without getting excited or having fear. That's what I want people to learn, to do Mm -hmm. that. It sounds really simple. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it's after years and years and years of study. And it's it's studying the old classics and the masters and then modern day research that supports what they discovered. Wow, it's uh, that two-pronged approach to try to educate the human and to become emotionally attuned to the horse is uh, so amazing that you have learned to do that. And I've seen some of your videos that you've posted with um, how you do th- how you do that approach with the horses and let- letting them enter the re- arena and coming to you. Um, I really admire what you do. I know nothing about horses. <laughs> But I feel like I know so much more now. Well, it, if if I was to if I was to direct somebody, if they said, "Well, Ricky, Ricky, this all sounds really well, and it sounds great. I wish I could do that." I, I would direct them to to um, study uh, a couple of different people. Uh, one from the United States. If I could take use six words to summarize what I do. Three of them come from a gentleman that um, lived in the 1800s, and they are calm, forward, and straight. General Lahotte, L apostrophe H O T T E. I'm reading his book right now. Um, it's translated, and his book is called Equestrian Questions. And the reason I like those three words is calm, forward, and straight tells you that the horse needs to be receptive, not sedate. They need to uh, work without being overly excited. They are taught to know their job, and they collaborate with you at a level that prevents them from 
becoming evasive or going into bad postures. Um, so forward means the horse is ready to go, even at the halt. The horse is ready. They're listening to you. Whether you're working from the ground or from the saddle, they know that they're in a session with you and they want to collaborate and they are ready to go forward. They're ready to change gates for you. And then we have straight. Not every horse and really most horses are crooked. They're handiness. They're right-handed. They're left-handed. They're right diagonal. They're left diagonal. I'm restoring a horse right now that unfortunately for several years was in the hands of someone that didn't know what they had. Um, it's, a, it's a Tennessee walking horse, and she was horribly affected with a left bend, and so that means she's very heavy on a right rein. And so that is something that's common, but when you let it go out until the horse is 10 years old, they've solidified the positions required for them to hold that, and those are not healthy movement positions. She had a hip that was dropping, a hoof way out, out of line. She favored being on one shoulder. She favors having her head turned one direction. That is a long-term fix. But if we can get straight or symmetry, uh, we see it in that the horse is equally workable to the right, to the left, is more maneuverable, and they will move correctly so that they have a longer service life. If you ride a crooked horse, you guarantee that those joints in the legs are not tracking properly. So they're going to wear out just like somebody who has um, a problem in one of their knees, uh, or actually it, it ends up in their knee because they have a hip that is not holding their knee in the right position when they ambulate. And then they choose to be a jogger or a runner. And no one tells them, stop, stop your knee. You're blowing your knee out. And they don't know it. And then five years later, they love running. They love the running high. Then they put a brace on. Well, mm -hmm. my knee hurts. Well, we saw that coming. <laughs> well, with a horse at 10 years later, and they've been moving like this, luckily, the one that I have right now is not showing any lameness problems. We can't just throw a brace on them. We have to at least try to get them to move properly because form and function. And we want the best function, let's get them in the right form. The other three words, they come from, that, that, that gentleman's a French well-established horseman with a book. Um, you can find it on Xenophon Press, uh, which is spelled X-E-N-O-P-H-O-N Press. And uh, it's two books in one. One is from the translator's history of the gentleman and his and the instructors that were opposite. They were in opposition of each other in France at the time, and this gentleman melded them together. So, um, again, uh, it's La Haute, and the book was Equestrian Questions. Now, another gentleman, United States Cowboy, um, and there's a brothers. Matter there was three brothers, but only two of them became popular. The other one just decided that he was just going to work horses and they both pointed to their older brother that he was really the horseman but this is uh bill and tom dorrance d-o-r-r-a-n-c-e they are the beginners of what turns out to be natural horsemanship made made very famous by a gentleman named pat pirelli these guys in their books talked about feel so we have there are three words which came from Don, uh, from Tom is we have to have uh, feel, balance, and timing. So if we take calm, forward, straight, feel, balance, and timing, I could expand on, as I already have, I can expand on those six words ad nauseum of what it means for horsemen and for horses. So in balance... So if you ride a horse crooked, you're going to take them into a very uh, challenging decision that they don't want to fall over, but they've got to adjust to your imbalances, and that makes them, again, lose their form, so they're not going to function as well. Um, think about, you know, sitting your mass, um, take a 150-pound person, put them on a 1,000-pound horse, 
and two-thirds of your weight go onto the front end. Well, you just change the horse's form. You now have a horse that's moving with more weight on the front end, but you really want them working on the rear end. So your balance has to be countered by training the horse to work on its haunch better. So balance has so many different meanings, right to left balance, um, twisting balance, and forward and back balance. Very important to the horse. So then the feel, and here's where a lot of people don't get it. Um, I call it my bridal academics, and it comes from uh, a famous um, equestrian that was actually, uh, he, he set the world on its ear uh, in the 1850s, 1860s, 1870s. His name was Boucher, B-A-U-C-H-E-R. Um, there are several books written about him. Uh, he evolved to this second method that is uh, how to get feel out of your horse without riding the horse, but feel through the bit. And he called it his flexions. And that to me, if a person takes the time to stand in front of their horse and develop a feel with the bit in their fingers as soft as possible and ask for different head positions with the horse standing still, you go eye to eye with that horse, you reward them with a smile, a release of the bit, and a pet. And, and you can teach that horse to follow your hands just about anywhere. And if the horse gets evasive and they pop their head up, you go with them and you go, no, 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 honey, come back down here. And you bring them back to you. And you practice all of the positions that you want to get from the saddle with this really light feel. When you get in the saddle and pick up the rein, that horse, and you use the same feel, that horse goes, that's familiar. That's, that's fair. I'll follow that. I know who's on the other end of that. It's powerful. So that's your feel. Also, your feel of your leg. Do I jab a horse with a spur or do I associate the horse with a wisp of my leg to get the same response? Mm -hmm. Teach that from the ground. It's incredibly powerful. Then the last thing of the uh, is timing. You have to know when your horse is in position in order to ask for a cue that they can be successful at. Too many people overposition their horse, muscle them with a the leg, push their seat into the wrong position, and expect something that the horse doesn't know, and then they blame the horse. That is stupid horse. And it, it, it's just so obnoxious to watch that I, I, I typically want to go up and go, please stop, but the people don't know me. And would you get off your horse and can I, can I introduce you to something different? That doesn't go well. So I never try that. Mm -hmm. So we, there's our six words right there. I can put them all right in those words. And so again, it's, it's calm, forward, straight. And then we have feel, balance, and timing. That encompasses everything I do. Well, Ricky, this has just been so informative. I, and uh, I I know that you're uh, on a journey to transform people's thoughts and processes. Uh, do you have any contact information you would like to share about Fair Deal Horsemanship, how people can reach you and learn more about your process? Uh, it's on a, a private domain, my email, and uh, it's the initials of the business, FDH, so that's Fair Deal Horsemanship, at I foxtrot the letter i the word foxtrot because i love foxtrotters and i have several <laughs> and then we have uh the dot o-r-g so rick uh the fdh at ifoxtrot.org um and uh if anyone has questions or wants some more resources um and then uh, i have a library of books that is probably not matched by a lot of people um you know, uh, and it's all on classical training methods and modern training methods. And um, I would like to just tell everybody, if you're going to say you're a horse trainer, um, you need to attend dissection courses, physiology courses. You need to understand everything about the horse's potential for the most common injuries. Uh, too many trainers hang out this, this uh, the, the, the sign and say, I'm a horse trainer. And uh, and I find out that um, they basically are 
going to try to create a horse through the kind of means that takes advantage of their fear. And uh, they don't know anything about movement or injury prevention or development of a horse or the horse's emotion, the horse's nervous system, the horse's brain. So um, I just throw that out there that uh, if you're going to be a trainer, you need to be a lifelong learner and you need to uh, fill up your basket of knowledge nonstop forever. I'm still curious and I'm still going to be reading every morning. Well, and you also have a have Facebook pages, correct? If people want to get in touch with you there, uh, on Facebook, yeah, Fair Deal Horsemanship Inc. Um, I haven't been posting a lot there. I mm. have people that have been begging me for a couple of videos of, of some of my techniques, and maybe someday I'll get to that. But you will be able to go on there and see some uh, some history of some things that I've gone through. Um, I post a lot on my Facebook page, also, uh, and sometimes get them transferred over. Um, I've well, won a lot of a lot of hearts of horses, and I'm trying to win some hearts of humans. <laughs> I I'm sure that you you uh, will do that, and and thank you so much, Ricky, for your time today. And I hope to someday meet you and Sandy. I would love that, and I appreciate again you coming on and and enlightening us. I know we could. We, I hope you'll come back again because I know we've not touched on everything. Oh, I, I feel like I've barely even opened up the book. Uh, you, Wendy, you're, you're welcome anytime. And anybody else out there, you're welcome. Uh, get hold of me and you can come and I will, I will show you what my horsemanship looks like. Well, thank you so much for my guest today, Ricky Cummings, for, for your time. And uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And please be kind. Thanks for listening to Life on the Illinois Prairie, the undercurrents of our American life. If you haven't yet, go ahead and subscribe to Life on the Illinois Prairie wherever you get your podcast. Stay tuned for more stories, interviews, and updates. I'm your host, Wendy Fleming Dexter. Until next time. Produced by Audovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.